right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. We're going to be finishing up this book. Uh, if you've not been here for a while or maybe you've never been here before, uh, just a couple of things I want to tell you about this. Uh, we started this um, a little over two years ago, this idea that we could get through the entire New Testament in five years if we did one chapter a week. Sometimes that works out just perfectly. Each chapter sometimes has just one topic and it just flows so nicely. Uh, other weeks, you're going to have long chapters. Like last week, we had 58 verses. That is a lot to cover in one week. Uh, and then you'll have times like this week where uh, it's the end of a book or a book, the end of a letter. And so every couple of verses is like a whole new topic. And so we're going to get about a half a dozen different topics this morning. So it'll be like you're getting six sermons for the price of one. So just look at it that way. Six sermons for the price of one. Where else can you get a better deal than that, right? That's pretty good stuff right there. Uh, but just working our way and finishing up this morning, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, again, Paul was dealing with some of the bad reports that he had heard about that church also answering a number of questions uh, that they had sent to him. Uh, and the way that we find the questions in this, and this starts in chapter 7 where he starts answering those questions, as he's going to use this phrase that we see here in verse 1, now concerning. And as we see that phrase, now concerning, that'll introduce a new question that he's beginning to answer. You'll see that twice in this chapter. So he's going to answer two more questions in this chapter, but just kind of interspersed between there. At times, it just feels like random thoughts that he said, this, this letter is too long. I need to start wrapping it up. Oh yeah, I wanted to talk about this, but I got to end this letter. Oh yeah, but I got to talk about this. And so he just kind of has these ideas thrown in there. It's basically just like having a a conversation with a human being, right? Like you think this is the way the conversation's going and then, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you this and now we're back over here again. It'll feel a lot like that for us today. So um, let's introduce this first subject, this first question that he's going to answer here in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. His first subject that he's going to address here is a collection that he's been taking for the saints, he says here. Uh, it's a collection he's been doing all throughout his ministry. Uh, it started really in Acts chapter 11. Uh, a prophet stood up by the name of Agabus and he basically said, look, there's going to be famine in the area of Judea. There's going to be great need for the churches. And so you should start setting aside some money to care for them. Really a simple idea that Paul kind of took with him all throughout his ministry. Uh, in addition to that, uh, one of the calls that he had in ministry when he went to meet with the uh, original apostles there in Jerusalem, they asked him to pay attention to the poor, and he was, of course, glad to do that. That was an important part uh, of his ministry. And I would say it's an important part of all Christians' ministries that we would pay attention to those who have needs, specifically within the body of Christ, but even beyond the body of Christ. Uh, uh, we see that listed out in so many different ways in Scripture. Of course, Jesus talks about that when he separates the sheep and the goats at the end times. It's going to be based on, in some ways, seeing those who minister to the physical needs of the church. 
He'll say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drinks. Uh, In the same sense, uh, even James will say that pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their time of need. It's just that same kind of mentality, that same idea that there should be some investment in those who are having need. Uh, What's great about this, though, is just this picture that Paul gives us uh, where he's, he's, he's asking the churches, the individual churches, to think of the greater body of Christ outside their walls, uh, that they would not just think about their particular church, but they would think about other churches who might have needs and thinking how they might be able to meet the needs of other churches that are struggling, maybe financially, maybe in some other way. When I was... Um, uh, before I was pastoring here, I started out as a Baptist. That might be shocking to some of you, but I happen to actually really appreciate uh, Baptists and Baptist ministry. And one of the things I appreciated uh, was they had kind of this standard routine in a lot of Baptist churches that summertime would come and a group of guys and gals and oftentimes teenagers would load up in trucks and they would drive to a church somewhere in the country and they would put a new roof on the building. It's just very practical, very simple ideas. They would go to a town that had just been hit by a hurricane and they would go in there and they would start doing some of the cleanup, just these very simple, practical things that they would do, investing in and caring for other churches. Uh, for me, it's right up my alley too because as a church, we have consistently made the habit of praying for other churches. We want the people who attend Calvary Chapel to recognize this is just the address that you meet at on Sunday, but this is not the church. This is just where a portion of the church meets. All over the city, there are other churches, and we love those people. We want to see God's great things in their lives, and there have been times when we've been able to assist churches that are having struggles in various ways. We help them out Uh, at different times so that we can make sure that they're uh, succeeding in the ministry uh, that they do. That's an important part of who we are as a church. Uh, The great thing about this, though, Paul kind of listing it all out here for us, gives us just the very beginning, but a, a couple of ideas on the appropriate ways to handle financial giving within the church. A pretty sticky issue, by the way. A lot of Christians uh, have struggled with that for years, and a lot of unbelievers struggle with that. They look at churches, and they think it's always about money. All you want to do is get our money. You're always looking for more money. And so it's kind of this real struggle as a church. You're like, you want to talk about money because money is in Scripture, but you don't want to talk about money too much because it throws people off, right? And so you just kind of work your way through it, and you do the best that you know how Uh, One thing I would point out in this that I think is interesting is the way that he says to do this in verse 2 is on the first day of every week. Uh, In other words, what he's telling them, even though this is a special collection for a different church, it's still when you gather together as a church that this is part of what you do in worship. The giving is part of what you do on Sunday when we gather together as a church. That was something that started early in the Christian church. They would gather together on Sunday, uh, which would for them be a, a work day. That was their first day of the week. And so they would often have their church gatherings in the evening after everybody got off work. But when they gathered together, people would donate either to the ministry of that church or in this case, to special projects that the church might be invested in in caring for other people. Uh, In addition to that, it's basically telling you to do this in some planned way. It's uh, every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. So you personally have to make a decision how much you want to invest in these types of things. 
Uh, and he makes it clear here, I think, by saying, as he may prosper. In other words, uh, he, he wants it to be, if you happen to have more that you can give, then that's great. But if you don't have a lot to give, there's no need for you to give a lot. It's as you may prosper. Uh, the greater teaching on this actually is going to come in the next book we do in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, probably the most complete instructions in the New Testament on how to handle giving in the church. Uh, but in there, he's going to make that same point. He's going to say, I don't want you to give so much that you're poor. I'm just saying, while you have some to give, now's the time to give to those who have nothing. But someday those who have nothing may be built back up and you may be in a, pro a problem financially. They'll be able to help you. It's just kind of this nice give and take and the way that those things happen. Uh, it's a big part of how churches handle things is this idea, and I think we all need to remember this, churches only have financial means as the people within the church decide to give to that church. And so anything that we accomplish as a church, if you're giving to it, you're a part of that. You've invested in the kingdom of God. Now here's an odd thing. This might just strike you as odd here. Let's think about this for a second. Can you remember the last time we took an offering at church? It's been like two years since we've taken an offering at church. Isn't that weird? And yet God still provides for us. It's, it's just this decision we've kind of made. Uh, it started um, early on in our church. We've always said, we're just not gonna make a big deal out of money. We're just not gonna do it. We're only gonna talk about it when it comes up in scripture. That's why we get to talk about it today. We're just not gonna do it. But then COVID happened and we're like, ew, we're gonna pass this thing around that everybody else in the room has touched? That's disgusting. I never thought it was disgusting before. Now I can't imagine doing it again. Like, forget COVID. I don't know where you've been today. I don't know what you touched before you got here. I don't know if you washed your hands when you go to the bed. It's all weird to me now. It wasn't weird before. Weird to me now. So we don't even do that anymore. We've got the little boxes in the back. You can give online. There's ways to give. People are giving, but it just doesn't come up that often, and yet God provides. And so we've taken it a very simple stance is whatever is provided is what we need to be good stewards of. And however much it is, that will help us determine how much we're going to do. And we just live within the means of what there is there, but we're not going to sit here, spend all of our time talking about money. And I think Paul was nervous about that. Paul was really concerned that he would be known more for this collection than he would be for the ministry that he did. You'll see even in chapter, or in 2 Corinthians, that one of the things they're going to be angry at Paul about is they were saying, or at least somebody had kind of intimated that maybe he was taking this money for himself. Of course, that wasn't what Paul was doing. The way we know that, look at the rest of the instructions here in verse three. Whenever I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. He says to the church in Corinth, I don't wanna be a fundraiser when I get there and I don't even wanna touch the money. You guys figure out what you're going to give, whatever it is. He doesn't say, I need you to give this much. He doesn't give them any specifics in that. He just says, I want you to invest in this. And whatever it is, when I get there, you pick two of your people to come with me back to Jerusalem to give the money so that you know that the money went where it was supposed to go. Very practical wisdom in that. Uh, something that uh, we probably don't think about much in churches, uh, but you think to this, maybe you don't want to know this kind of stuff because nobody wants to really know how the sausage is made, right? But 
you put money either online to a church or in the offering box right there. The money goes in there. What happens with it after that? Like I, I assume you pay the uh, bills so we can have air conditioning in here because I'm not going to church without air conditioning. I'll tell you that right now. Been to churches without air conditioning in the South. I'm not doing it again. I'm just not going to do it, right? Well, but there's a process. So we have people in the church, deacons. These are volunteers. And they come and they take the money and then they put it in a drop safe. I don't want to give too many details because then nefarious people might use that to their benefit, but it's in the safe. And then we have during the week, different volunteers that come in, they actually count the money. You see, the idea is that there's no one person that has their access to it at all times. Even the safe has a combo and a key. One person has the combo, another person has the key. Just all these little things that you do those things though so that people can trust you. You do those things so there can be nobody looking at this and saying, this isn't appropriate. Just very practical, simple insights there. But I think to me, the most practical is that Paul doesn't see it as this is our church and that's their church and we don't care about them. No, we do care about the other churches around us. We want that to be a big part of who we are as a church. Verse five, let's change subjects now. Paul's gonna start to list out his travel plans as well as the travel plans of Timothy and Apollos. He says this in verse five, uh, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia for I am going through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go for I do not wish to see you now just in passing for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see to it that he is with you without cause to be afraid for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let, the, let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come uh, when he has opportunity. Uh, so we're, we're moving now into this next section where it's, it's really just listing out all these travel plans, first for the Apostle Paul, then for Timothy, and there for Apollos last. Uh, and it, it seems kind of inconsequential, but there's a couple of interesting things that you can pull out of that. Uh, the first is, as we look at the Apostle Paul's travel plans, he wants to come to Corinth and he wants to stay there a while. And I'm starting to suspect one of the reasons he wants to stay there a while is all the problems they're having there. He just, he's like, I'm going to have to give them a little bit of extra time. Just like Sunday school teachers sometimes have to give other kids in the class a little extra time. They just need a little bit more attention because they're struggling, right? Well, the church at Corinth, it seems like, needs a little bit of extra time for Paul. So he says, I'm not just going to pass through your town. No, I plan to stay there for a while. But right now, he's ministering in Ephesus. Uh, this is the other thing that I find fascinating about this in verse 9. He's in Ephesus, uh, and we'll find out from other places, Acts chapter 18 in particular, uh, that while he's in Ephesus, it's the longest he ever stays in one town. It's Ephesus. He really does stay there for a long time. And he tells us why in verse 9, a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. So you've heard this idea that sometimes God, we're just waiting for God to open a door for us. Well, the door that was open for Paul was opportunity to do ministry in Ephesus. The part that I find fascinating is what he seems says next. And there are many adversaries. Now, most of us would say, 
wide door for open opportunity. Look at all the adversaries. That's obviously a closed door because we don't want to walk into adversity, right? But Paul says it completely different. He sees an opportunity for ministry and because the opportunity for ministry is there, he doesn't care how many adversaries there are, which really kind of makes sense. If you're doing God's will, do you think Satan's happy about that? You see, we kind of have this weird mentality that now that we're Christians, everything's just going to go perfect in our life. We have this weird teaching throughout churches sometimes that now that I'm Christian, my life just got better. Not necessarily. The fact is, now that you became a Christian, your afterlife got better. Your eternity got better. But in this life, Jesus even said, in this life, you will have trouble. If they hated you, or if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Those are the things that Jesus said. There should be an expectation if we're serving the Lord that Satan's not going to be too happy about it. So we shouldn't be uh, um, scared when adversity comes into our life while we're serving God. It should be expected. We actually have to warn people of that when we hire them on as pastors. And most of the time when they hear that, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then a few months later, they're like, you're not kidding. It's a real deal thing. If you're serving God, Satan's not happy, and he will target you. He will try to find ways. Uh, And it doesn't mean that you'll always have problems, but it just means that those problems that might come up should not prevent us from wanting to do the work of the Lord. A great little principle there for us. The sad one to me is the next one here when it talks about poor Timothy. So Timothy already has a little bit of a reputation scripturally for being uh, somewhat cowardly, uh, somewhat fearful in his ministry, not real confident in himself. You can see that clearly in 1 Timothy. It just this, Paul's just having to encourage this poor guy. And it turns out the deal with Timothy is he's just young. He's just young in the ministry. He's young as a human being. And so Paul even says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but you set the example for them. Just trying to spur Timothy on to encourage him in the ministry. Um, But this to me is a little bit sad. If you're the church of Corinth and you receive a letter that says these words, see to it uh, that he is with you without cause to be afraid... And then in verse 11, let no one despise him. What kind of church has to receive a letter in advance of a traveling missionary coming through saying, don't hate that guy? I mean, that's just, what's wrong with this church? The Corinth has to have this letter from the Apostle Paul. Don't be mean to your traveling missionaries. Be nice to those guys. They need your support. But there really was this problem going on in Corinth where the people there were dividing up over who their favorite pastor was. Now we'll meet Apollos here next in verse 12. Concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Well, what you might not remember is in the first chapter, we were introduced to Apollos. And the church was divided and fighting over whether they were followers of Paul or Peter or Apollos. That church in Corinth kind of was playing the favorites with those who were traveling missionaries or ministers or pastors. Whoever was in their place, they're kind of like, well, I can't really hear from that pastor over there. But this pastor, now that's one I can hear from. 
Uh, Do you see how they kind of started to play favorites and it was causing division in the church where they're basically dividing up into teams. I I am of team Paul and I am of team Peter and I am of team Apollos. And so Paul, knowing that that's what that church is like, he's like, poor Timothy, he's not on any of the teams. He's the new guy. Nobody's gonna like him. For the church in Corinth, this should have been a pretty solid rebuke for them. And here's something that I I want us to kind of consider in this, because I think we, um, not necessarily as a church, but as individual Christians, have to guard ourselves against that. It, It makes perfect sense for us to have pastors that we like more because they've invested more in us. So for instance, if you go to a certain church and you've been there for 20 years and it's been the same pastor for 20 years and then he retires or gets hit by a bus or something, the new guy comes in, the first thing you're thinking is, I don't even know this guy. I don't know this guy. Can I trust him? Well, it should be the opposite. We should immediately be seeking to be ministered to by them. We should understand that they're bringing the word of God, the work of God, and that's what we're excited about. And it's not so much about the personality of the pastor. The deal with Apollos was, he was just slick, man. He's described in scripture as being eloquent of speech. Paul says, I didn't come to you in powerful speech. And so they were saying to themselves, well, that Apollos can really preach. Now, Apollos, though, really could preach, but he had one little minor problem. He actually just didn't know all the truth. (laughs) But man, he was a good preacher. You see that early in the book of Acts when he and Paul first crossed paths. It's actually a young couple, Aquila and Priscilla, are actually gonna have to take Apollos inside and say, hey, you're doing a great job, um, but some of your facts are wrong, buddy. And and to his credit, he changes. He brings in the truth. So he he was kind of preaching the gospel, but he really only knew the things that John the Baptist had said. He didn't really know all the stuff about Jesus. So he's kind of doing the best with the knowledge he had. And he was so good at preaching that people were like, this is the guy. But he had to be corrected. He didn't have full knowledge at this point. And so until that became apparent to him, became, until that became more uh, obvious to him, uh, he really wasn't as good as he seemed on the outside. Now, that's a real danger, though, to fall for the slick guy, the guy that seems to have the great way of speaking and not really checking to see if what he's saying is true. Uh, it's a new thing that's kind of... Um, I don't want to say it disturbs me. It, maybe it more embarrasses me a little bit, but... Uh, I've had this weird thing going on lately where I, I watch all these pastors on, uh, on social media. They're amazing. Like I look at these guys and they're all up there and they're like perfectly tanned and they're like running around the country doing all this amazing stuff. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like I'm fat. I dress funny. I stumble over my words all the time. And these guys have like these perfect little two-minute sound bites to their sermon on there. I really appreciated a couple weeks ago, actually, one of those pastors uh, posted a blooper reel. I was like, man, I needed that blooper reel more than you know. Guy needed to see all the times this guy messed up because he literally, half of his Facebook posts are him like out swimming or fishing or playing football with a whole group of all these other famous pastors. And he's like perfectly built almost always shirtless. And I'm like, I am never going to be the shirtless pastor. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Perfect. In second Corinthians, by the way, they're going to call these guys the super apostles. (laughs) Everybody's just into these guys. 
we kind of have to be careful that we not get so caught up in the image or the abilities of those who are doing ministry that we reject the abilities of those who maybe just don't look as cool or sound as slick or do things in such an amazing way. Well, we move on to our next subject here in verse 13. He's going to be somewhat continuing that thought, uh, but in a little bit different vein. Verse 13, he says, uh, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Uh, so, uh, I'm kind of getting out of my, I put two sections together here, but look there in verse 14. Uh, it says, let all that you do be done in love. Now, this is kind of one of those all-encompassing teachings of Scripture, right? Well, look how that plays out if you think backwards to Timothy and now look forward to this guy that he's going to introduce us to, Stephanus and his two buddies, Fortunatus and Achaicus, which, by the way, Fortunatus sounds like an amazing name. I don't know, just like so fortunate, man. The, the guys here, Stephanus, ah, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, they're ministers, it says, to the saints, but what's not clear is exactly what the ministry that they do. In fact, they get no other mention in the rest of Scripture, only in this one book. And it really seems like they had one job in the church, to deliver letters, that they took the letter from Corinth to the Apostle Paul, who writes a letter back to Corinth, and they deliver the letter back to Corinth. It seems like they have the spiritual gift of delivery, that they have the ministry of delivering mail. And yet, what does Paul say about these guys? This is great. Uh, he says, uh, I'm going to just jump down to verse 17. Um, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus. He supplied what was lacking on your part. They refreshed my spirit and yours. Just seeing these people who have this very kind of behind-the-scenes ministry. But it's a really practical thing if you think about it. Like Paul's writing these letters to the churches that will someday be recorded for us so that we can have them, right? So that we have the word of God for us. Somebody had to deliver that letter. You see, all behind the scenes, there's always a group of people that are serving diligently that nobody really pays attention to. Well, what does Paul want this church to do? Two things, be in subjection to them and acknowledge them. Two really simple things he wants the church to do for those guys. Be in subjection to them and acknowledge them. I love that. Uh, think of it this way. Right now, while you're in here, there are people all around the building doing things. There's people teaching Sunday school classes. We have the nursery workers. We have somebody at the info counter. We actually have the deacons getting communion ready for tonight's service. We have a family up at the annex right now that's preparing the newcomer's pizza with the pastor's thing that we have after this service. 
There's all these people behind the scenes doing things that nobody even thinks about. There are people that take out the trash for us every week. First service I saw after service, there's this little kid and it's his job. Every service he goes by and he picks up all the communion cups off the back of the chairs that you guys put there after you took communion. And he's walking around, he's got this stack of little communion cups. And I'm like, dude, you're the best. I love that guy. Like we need to acknowledge these people. All these people behind the scenes that are doing things. They kind of get forgotten sometimes. But that other powerful thing is to be in subjection to such men. Now that sounds a little bit weird now. But really it's just living out your Christian faith. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul says to all believers, be in subjection to one another. That we would just see the needs of other people as more important than our own needs. We just care for one another as Christians. He wants that church there to look at the guys who are delivering the mail, bringing these letters back and forth, which by the way was no small task for them, right? Like think about this, at the time of, of the Apostle Paul, this is written in, the, in the, probably the 50s or 60s AD, there's no cars, there's no gas stations along the way for all your snacking needs, right? Like these guys are like donkeys and camels, and walking and boats to get from one place where they are to wherever it is in the world that the Apostle Paul happens to be this week, just happens to be Ephesus. And then they got to get back with that letter. And that was probably a month or more's journey for them to do that. Like somebody needs to say to those guys, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. So important that we have those people that are willing to do those things behind the scene. Well, we move on to the next things. These are the kind of the closing things, uh, but we have these greetings here in verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord uh, with the church that is in their house. The brethren all greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll just avoid the holy kiss today and uh, talk about the other greetings that are mentioned there. Certain cultures, the holy kiss is cool. I'm not so sure it's cool in our culture, but um, the churches of Asia and Aquila and Prisca and the church that meets at their house and all the brethren, uh, this greeting that goes back and forth. It's just a standard thing that goes in a letter. Uh, but the thing that stands out about to this to me is this couple, Aquila and Prisca. Uh, you'll see them as Aquila and Prisca sometimes and sometimes Aquila and Priscilla. So Prisca maybe was just a nickname or something along those lines. Uh, but they really kind of have this cool ministry in Scripture. Uh, they're originally in Rome. While they're in Rome, we find out that the emperor at that time, Claudius, uh, says, we need to get rid of all the Jews. And he tells all the Jews that they have to leave Rome. So it, getting rid of the Jews is not a new thing. This has been going on throughout history, right? So he decides we want to get rid of all the Jews. He kicks them out of Rome. And so this couple here, Aquila and Priscilla, now they're like on the road. They've been kicked out of their own home, the place where they live, and they end up in Corinth. While they're in Corinth, they run across the Apostle Paul, and they decide he's doing such great ministry, we're going to go with him wherever he goes. This couple here are the ones that corrected Apollos' false doctrine, and then we find that now they're in Ephesus with the Apostle Paul, and they've started a house in their church, and then at the end of the book of Romans, we'll see that they're going to end up going back to Rome after Claudius dies, and again, they're going to start another church in their house and probably ministering to the Apostle Paul while he's in prison there in Rome. 
This husband and wife team is, is pretty stinking amazing if you think about it. And I think it's really kind of a cool thing for, for the husbands and wives where you're both believers and you're both just finding ways to serve. I think it's great if, if one of you volunteers for Sunday school. I think it's greater if you both do it together. That's how my wife and I started in youth ministry. We were volunteering for the youth group at our church in Missouri. And then when we moved to Cheyenne, we were in the nursery together. And we always tried to do things together as a husband and wife team when we were doing ministry. The other thing that I think is neat is when you look at Aquila and Prisca or Aquila and Priscilla, uh, about half the time when Paul introduces these two in his writings, he says her name first. And I think that's just a little hat tip to her to just like, honestly, between the two, she probably does more than him. And I can relate to that, by the way, as a pastor. Again, here I am, I get to be up front all the time. My wife has served so diligently over the years. 21 years she's been teaching Sunday school at this church. 21 years teaching Sunday school. And she still doesn't get annoyed. Like, how is that possible? 21 years. She led the women's ministry for a while. She currently leads the Young Marrieds group and a Sunday night prayer time, and two discipleship groups. She built our church website, but she didn't know how to do it. She taught herself how to build a website to build our church website that we have right now. And it wasn't just that, it was way more annoying than that because I would sit there and watch TV because I'm so exhausted from all the ministry that I do. Uh, I'd be sitting on the couch watching TV and she'd be over there just like typing away and then she'd show me what she had done and I'd go, I don't know, it's weird. And she'd say, what's weird about it? I don't know, a little wonky. What's wonky about it? I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. And so she would be like, okay. And she'd just say, how about that one? Well, that's better, but I don't really like those colors. And she'd say, you're colorblind. I'm like, you're right, I should not talk about color. <laughs> and she just kind of worked through hundreds of hours to teach herself and then to build our church website. She does all of our social media posts for the church. She does our announcements here. She does the announcements that we mail out. Uh, most of that she does behind the scenes and nobody ever sees those things. I think that's true of a lot of people in ministry. It's interesting though that sometimes they say Aquila and Priscilla and sometimes they say Priscilla and Aquila. And I think that's sometimes how it works here. Sometimes it's Sean and Sheila, but the people that have been most ministered to by Sheila are like, oh look, it's Sheila and Sean. Because <laughs> they know that she's the one that's really ministered to their lives. It's a powerful thing for our, our marriages that we could be serving the Lord together. And I love the way that works out here. We finish it up with this last little piece in verse 21 on down. The greeting is in my own hand. And then he literally writes out his name, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the first thing that Paul does there is he makes clear to them that this is actually him sending the letter. Uh, we believe that he had some sort of problems with his eyes. He had eyesight issues. And so he has, actually wasn't able to write these letters. He would dictate them as the Holy Spirit uh, empowered him to do it. And somebody else would write them down. Uh, but then he would sign them in his own hand. In another place, he says, look how big the letters are. Obviously, I signed this myself. So it's just, to me, I just imagine Paul, like they would write it all out diligently. And at the end of this perfectly written out letter, then Paul would write his name at the bottom like, Paul, so that they knew that this was actually from him. They could tell because people, just like today, 
would imitate him and say, oh, I'm going to write a letter and I'm going to say it's from the Apostle Paul so that these people will do what I want them to do. Still happens today, by the way. This happens every six months or so in our church. Somebody will go to our website. They find all of our email addresses there and they'll send out an email and they'll say, hey, this is Pastor Sean. We have somebody in the church that's in need. Would you send us gift cards? Happens all the time. And they're just taking the email addresses off of the internet. Happened last week where I had a number of people. I still don't know what this person's end game was, but it was just an email that said, hey, this is Pastor Sean. I need to meet with you. Can you just email me back? But here's what they're doing. They're using a different email. They're not using my email. They've made one up that's kind of close to mine. And then they get you to email them back. And now they've got their confidence. Oh, this is Sean and I just having a conversation. And now they're going to ask you for something. So don't be afraid to get an email from me to say, I'd like to see how poor the handwriting is. <laughs> so just call the church. Just, just verify, right? Well, that was an issue that they were having at that time. They had to have some way to verify that this really was from Paul. And his huge, huge writing was the way that they could tell. Um, but he says this pretty powerful thing here. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed Maranatha. It's actually a play on words. In the Greek, that would say, instead of accursed, it would say anathema. And then he puts the Aramaic word next, Maranatha. And they have exact opposite meanings, but they kind of rhyme. Anathema, Maranatha. There's just something he's doing there in the language with those two words. Uh, but this idea is that those who don't love the Lord will be cursed. And then he says, O come, Lord Jesus. He's, he's making the connection that those who don't love the Lord will be cursed when Jesus comes. And he wants them to see that. And I think we don't always think of it in terms of that, but we should love Jesus. Uh, an interesting play on words here too is he uses the word phileo there. Now we know in the Greek that there's a number of words that mean love, but typically when we talk about Christian love, it's that all-encompassing word agape. That's the word we see the most. In fact, Paul will use it in just a minute in verse 24. My love be with you all. Agape. That's kind of that traditional Christian word. But this reminds me of Jesus after he resurrected from the dead. He goes to meet with Peter again, who's gone back to fishing. He's gone away from preaching, back to fishing. And Jesus is sitting next to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? But he says agape. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you even phileo me, brotherly love me? And in each one of those, if you do, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. If you love me, do the things I've asked you to do. For us as Christians, we should love God enough to do the things he's asked us to do. There's a real piece to that puzzle that I think we, we sometimes look at our faith in Jesus Christ as all too transactional. I've confessed him as Lord. I now receive my salvation. Transaction over. But it was never intended to be transactional. It was intended to be something so much more than that. If he's my Lord, if I love him, I will do the things he asks me to do. Jesus will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I ask you to do? It should just be a very normal thing for us as believers. 
to have that kind of a mentality and that way of thinking about the way we do these things. So that's when Paul then finishes it up with that more all-encompassing phrase, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. And so I'll end this the same way for you guys. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. So to prepare for next week, I thought it would make sense to go from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. Big reveal there, right? Whatever will we do after 1 Corinthians? I'm going to do that same trick with 1 Timothy, just so you know. Uh, But as I've been trying to get you guys, encouraging you guys to do this each week, uh, what I would like you to do is to read the chapter we're going to do next week. And so we're going to be in chapter 1 next week. My hope is that this week you will read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 every single day next week. It takes you two to three minutes. It won't take you that long. But here's what I believe actually happens. The more times you read it, the more opportunity God has to speak to you through his word before you ever get here. And then you'll hear a sermon about it. Now having read it seven times and heard a sermon about it, you're going to know more about 2 Corinthians chapter 1 than most believers will. And you'll be prepared to have a conversation with somebody else about it. The idea again is, we want you guys to see that you have an important part to play in the ministry of the church. That you can disciple other people just through a very simple pattern. Taking what you've received and investing in other people. And maybe you do it at coffee break one day at work. Maybe you go to lunch with a friend or maybe you have kids and you have that conversation at your dinner table, which by the way, in the children's ministry, guess what book they're doing next? Second Corinthians. They're doing the same chapters that we are. So you'll have something that you can talk about. But it's all designed in such a way that you get the understanding that you as believers can hear from God in his word and can take his word and use it to minister to other people. And that's where the real power of a church lies. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for today. I'm thankful for 2 Corinthians and a chance to spend a little time in it. Uh, Lord, I know that every time we open your word, you have something you want to say to us. I pray uh, that even now your Holy Spirit would be speaking to the hearts of the believers in the room. Uh, They would start to see the applications for their own life. Uh, Whether it's thinking through how they give Uh, thinking through how they love, Uh, that maybe they would see themselves as uh, truly taking this challenge of whether or not they're doing the things that their Lord has asked them to do. Father, for those who don't believe, uh, that maybe today would be a day where they would recognize because they don't believe, because they don't love you, uh, that they truly are accursed. Lord, would today be the day that would be Maranatha for them, the day that you come into their life, bringing them to a point of salvation, that they would believe and that they would confess you as Lord and they would come to love you and serve you so that they cannot have their best life now, but they can have you for all eternity. Father, we ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.